first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. Brian Ascari is one of the great athletes of her generation. She was the goalkeeper for the U.S. women's national soccer team when they won uh, that famous World Cup in 1999. She's an Olympic champion, professional soccer player for many years, uh, and she's been very busy. She has a documentary film coming out on Paramount Plus about her and her life called The Only. And it's called The Only because when she was competing, she was the only black woman out lesbian on uh, the, the women's soccer team. And it, she, was a, she was a real trailblazer. And obviously not just those areas, but also just being this superstar female athlete. My conversation with her today, though, focuses on her book, My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper. And, uh, you know, there's a lot, when I approach interviews, I just try to figure out what's the angle that maybe people haven't heard before. And her greatest save had nothing to do with what she did as a goalkeeper, it was uh, an injury that she suffered that ended her career, that sunk her into deep depression, physical pain, and suicidal thoughts. And we spent a half hour talking about that and talking about the struggles that she experienced through her life and specifically about how you deal on a daily basis with physical and mental pain. It's, I talk about things that I've experienced, um, but you know, really, how do, you, how do people get through that and get through to the other side and just get up every day? Um, Brianna is a superstar, but just, just being uh, that a, a person, just, a, just, an, just an average person trying to get through the day, that's what really grabbed me about her story. So um, I, she's been doing the rounds uh, lately uh, around the, the media, which has been great to see. Great to see her book and her movie um, getting a lot of attention. And I really appreciate Brianna stopping by and talking with me. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. Brianna, thank you so much for joining me. And you have all of my attention with this <laughs> incredible new book, My Greatest Save. And one of the things that I find so interesting talking to celebrities and people who have been in the public eye is there's this idea that people who are celebrities 
uh, you know, for a moment, for 15 minutes, for 15 years, just have it all. And, and life is perfect. And this book is about life becoming very not perfect for you. What yes. happened? Well, a few things happened. Um, the one thing I can tell you regarding my career when I was playing on the national team still is if you look at all the, um, the footage and the records and the information about 1999, you see uh, an amazing uh, career at the pinnacle, winning a World Cup making a penalty kick save in front of 90,000 people and 40 million at home and all these amazing things. And, you know, I made the save and Brandy made the final kick and takes her shirt off and it's a storybook ending. And that was July, 1999. But if you look one year later at the Sydney games, um, you see that I played zero minutes in that Olympic tournament the very next year. And a lot of people were like, oh, were you injured this and that? I'm like, no, uh, there was a lot of self-sabotage going on after the 99 World Cup and all the fame and traveling and whatnot. I drank my own Kool-Aid, um, if you will. And I lost track of what was most important at that time, which was my fitness and my training and being being uh, aware of what I was eating and and really staying in shape so that we could roll into the Olympic Games right after that and I didn't do that and I ended up losing my spot um, and April Heinrichs we did a, a a coaching change April Heinrichs became the coach and had a lot of demands on on all of us of course when a new coach comes in and I ended up being 25 pounds overweight then I got injured with shin splints and all these different things happened and I lost my spot. And so, um, you know, that's obviously a lot of people would look at that and say, that's an example of what not to do. <laughs> yeah. um, and that was self-sabotage. But I also have another example, a really difficult time after um, essentially my final game um, playing club soccer in April of 2010. Um, I was in a game. I was making a routine save to my left-hand side on the ground and one of the opposing attacking players came in and tried to nip the ball in front of me with her toe and ended up crashing into the side of my head with her knee. I never saw her coming. Um, and because of that, the way she hit me, it was literally lights out. Um, by that, I mean, you know, my whole world changed. Um, that was the last game I ever played. And after that, I suffered a traumatic brain injury, as you can imagine, but I had suffered concussions before that. But this one was different. Um, the, the names in the backs of the jerseys were blurry and I started kind of wobbling to the left and I had a headache and I didn't really, I knew where I was, but I didn't really have a, a full understanding of, of, of myself and my being. It's, it's hard to explain. It, it was a detachment, essentially from my world. And so the next couple of months turned into a couple of years. And before I knew it, I was in New Jersey um, in, a, in a small studio apartment in 2011. And then 2012 came and then I was still there and I was languishing and my life was slowly deteriorating with all the concussion situation. And also, unfortunately, for me, the reason it took so long for me to regain normalcy 
is uh, the insurance company was battling me. They wouldn't um, agree that A, I was even injured or B, that they were responsible for it. And so my lawyers and I fought and fought. But in the meantime, I was taking this amazing, like amazingly horrible slide into the abyss and had so much emotional baggage now with anxiety attacks and panic attacks and depression. And I just hit rock bottom when I kept thinking about committing suicide. And it was a daily fight uh, for me to not do it. And I finally got to a point where I was thinking about how, when it dawned on me that somebody will have to tell my mother who at the time was suffering from Alzheimer's, tell her that her baby was gone. And the idea of her sitting in her bed and somebody knocking on the door and informing her that her daughter was dead um, basically shook me out of it. And I decided I was not gonna do anything like that while my, money, my mother was alive. And not, not long after that, um, a lifeline was thrown to me. And um, ironically, some people would say, my ex, Naomi Gonzalez, who is still my friend, started talking to someone, Chrissa Zizos, who's now my wife, and told Chrissa that I needed help. And Chrissa said she would help me. And that was the beginning of coming out of that deep, dark hole. But I tell you what, that was a long three years. When you were in that hole, I mean, you talked about your mom having Alzheimer's, hard mm -hmm. for her to be a strong part of your support system. Right. What did your support system look like? I, you talked about the lifeline that got thrown to you, but as you're mm -hmm. going through this, what did your support system look like around you? My support system was actually pretty solid. I had several really good friends. I had two best friends that knew for the most part, I'd say 90% of my ordeal. And I had asked them for money and they loaned it to me. And up until that point, I had never, and I mean, never asked for money. I used to be, I used to call myself the bank of Bri. If anybody needed money, they'd usually ask me and I'd make a way to have it happen and, and live with, you know, with giving people money. Um, I was solid. I was strong. I was capable of, of getting myself to anywhere I wanted to go. And unfortunately, with a head injury and my number one, you know, weapon in my arsenal, if you will, was my mind and my ability to figure out things. And it, that was broken. And so I had a decent structure of friends and family, but that last 10% of things that they didn't know about, including pawning my gold medals, I just didn't want to burden them. And I felt ashamed of where I was and what I looked like and I felt like. And I saw a picture of myself back from 99 and I didn't even recognize myself. I'm like, I know that's me, but it sure doesn't feel like it was me. Um, when you're in that kind of a state, and I'm sure people who hear this can relate. Um, it's hard to even understand how to get out. And I was ashamed. And that was 
probably my biggest um, opposition was not being okay with asking for the true help I needed. It just seemed like so much money. I was so behind on my rent and my bills. And thank goodness my landlord was, was really patient and nice, but that's not his problem. You know what I mean? Like I just beat myself up on the daily, um, just trying to get out of that. And, and before you know it, it just, you spin, you spin further and further downward. What did Naomi recognize where she said, there's some serious trouble here and we need to act? So Naomi was my girlfriend for six years. She knew me before my injury. So we, we met and we started dating in 2004 and my injury was 2010. And so she noticed an immediate change in me after my injury occurred. And then shortly thereafter, we had been having some issues in our relationship. And so she and I broke up, but she had um, another, another person that she started dating was Fran and they created this company called Tomboy X and your listeners should know Tomboy X, um, this clothing company essentially. And through a Kickstarter campaign, that's how Krissa came on board because she saw their Kickstarter campaign and, and Naomi knew me for a long time and she knew I was sliding slowly, slowly. We would talk on the phone and she could detect that I wasn't the same, didn't have the same energy, didn't sound like me. Or there were times when she would call and I wouldn't answer. And normally that wasn't like me at all or not get back to her for a while. And that was so she noticed the difference and changes in me. And she suspected that it was going further, further down. She knew what was happening, but she didn't know the full depth. But I think she instinctively felt it. And knew that with the insurance company not doing the right thing, that they were basically bleeding me out. And she knew that. And she thought that Krissa, who owned a PR firm and still does almost 25 years now, um, could probably do some magic and, and get that insurance company to do the right thing. The book is called My Greatest Save. How did you save yourself? <laughs> well, my greatest save was truly me. And by going one more day, one more day, one more day, and I literally had the only goal I had back then was to go for a walk once a day. And I was waiting and waiting and hoping and praying and sliding. I felt myself sliding the wrong way, but I kept believing because I'm an optimist at heart. And I just kept thinking, okay, I'm not gonna kill myself because my mom wouldn't be able to deal with it. And I can't do that to her. So I have to just keep going. I have to keep going. And shortly after, like I said, that's when Naomi, and I didn't even know she was doing this. I didn't know if she was going to have dinner with someone and she didn't know what it would, what would happen. But in that moment, she realized that she could make a connection. And she's so good at that to help me. 
And I just tried to hang in there um, until somebody could help. And it came from her. And that's the interesting thing about this was it wasn't something I did that helped me necessarily. It was something that someone else did to help me. And once I started talking to Krissa, the first time we spoke, just to tell her the state of things, I decided, and I don't even know where this came from. It must have been some instinctive knowing. I said to myself, I'm going to be completely and utterly transparent and honest with her about how bad it is for me. And we talked for 90 minutes and she just literally probably said maybe 10 words and just listened and listened and listened. And that is the other part of it that I learned from her, that if you're someone who knows that your friend is in trouble, all you really can do is listen. It's not your job necessarily to fix it. Although Krista was able to help me fix it, but the fact that she listened to me and she didn't judge me, I think that was truly a big step right there. I mean, you, you, you're, you're in, it sounds like deep financial trouble. You're, you're, you're borrowing money from friends or, or asking them to give it to you. You, you, you're in pain. Uh, you are facing medical issues that no one will help you with. Where did you find the, the will to fight? Cause it's one thing, it's one thing to say, okay, well, I don't want to upset my mom. It's another thing to say, I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm going to fight. And this is the interesting thing about emotions and depression. All the while my lawyers were fighting for me to get me to a point where I could get a certain, a certain treatment, which was an experimental surgery called occipital nerve release. And this is the thing at that time that the insurance company wouldn't pay for. And we couldn't get them to budge on it. And I figured it was going to take maybe months and months and months. And I, and I wanted to be able to get that treatment, but it just seemed so far. And the days were so long and I was in a hole and I was self-medicating with Vicodin and alcohol. And it was just, uh, uh, that was essentially, you know, going into, into a phase of, of not thinking about it by doing that with the alcohol and the Vicodin. And I was just trying to survive. Um, I don't know. I just had a spirit of, Something was saying to me inside, just keep going. Just keep going. And my lawyers, to his credit, he was calling me rather frequently, letting me know the status of things and was telling me, Brian, we're going to do this. Just hang in there. Just, just, Just stay with me. Stay with me. And but there was the dark times where it just seemed so far away. And as long as my mom was breathing, I knew I wasn't going to do it. So part of the way that I kept going was that walk, like taking this walk every day, maybe it's like two and a half mile loop in the area where I lived just to do that walk and then get up the next day and do it again. And I found a reason 
to live. I lived for that walk. And if that's all I could do, that's what I was going to do. And it truly helped because, like I said, shortly thereafter, the solution to the problem of getting the surgery came. And once the surgery was going, going to happen, then I could see the light at that point. Did the surgery provide for you the, the light? I mean, was yes. it, did it work? It did. It, it was an experimental procedure. And as soon as I opened my eyes after laying out flat on my back, going to recovery, I was like, oh my God, it's gone. Meaning that headache that always emanated from behind my left ear every single time. It was exactly the same every single day. And it was gone. Now, I don't know how many of your listeners or you have ever had chronic pain before, but when you have chronic pain like that, you just get to a point where you just function with it. It's like an old shoe or something. It's just there all the time. And you, you just deal with it. And, but yet you don't realize how much energy it's taking out of you until it's not there anymore. And so when it wasn't there, I just started crying. I was like, oh my God, it's gone. It's gone. And I saw Naomi and Krissa in the, in the recovery room and they were like, Brian, what's the matter? And I'm like, it's gone. It's gone. And they're like, great. And later on, they told me they were like, well, she's still on her anesthesia. So maybe it's not gone. Maybe she's still just drugged up, they said to each other, but not to me until later. And uh, sure enough, it was actually gone once the anesthesia wore off. And it was so cool. The next day, I went to the zoo. And it was like, I was like a child at the zoo looking at the giraffes and the elephants in the national zoo here in dc and i was just like oh my god this is amazing i just felt like i was born again or something like i like i had basically an elephant taken off my shoulders like it was just so amazing to not have that pain anymore it was really um just so astonishing i couldn't believe how good it felt just to be a little more normal yeah i uh when i was 19 i i i suffered a an injury playing sports that was misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed a second time and misdiagnosed a third time. And I have had back pain my entire adult life. Mm. And now I'm dealing with a right shoulder where that I need replaced, but nobody will do that for 10 years because I'm too young. Mm. So I do understand chronic pain yes. <laughs> very much. And, and I think that's, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about it because mm -hmm. it, it at, at for so many people, mm -hmm. I, I think they are living just in this silent pain that that eats at us every day. And you know, talking to somebody who you know, just that idea of just going for the walk mm -hmm. every day and living for that, I think that's really. Um, I think that's really great advice because it is something that we just don't talk about enough. Yeah, you don't. And, and this is, this is so vital. And, and that's why I wrote the book the way I did and why I, I am an advocate for TBI and so many other things that I am because, and I like to keep it real. I like to keep it vulnerable. I like to keep it honest because it is so many people, especially now with the pandemic and the way the world is and, you know, whatever is in your life, it's, 
it seems like it's breathless sometimes, like it's just so heavy and hard and difficult and quicksand. And, and I think what helped me so much was only worrying about what I could control. And I think that was another shift I made. Um, once I realized that I wasn't going to kill myself, I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I survive? Well, I had to stop worrying about what I can't control and start focusing on what I can. And I can control going for a walk once a day. And that's where I started. And I did walking. I did walking for years because it was where I found, you know, almost my, my sanctuary was that walk. And that's where I started to get powerful there. And that grew and grew over time. And I still walk, not every day, but quite a bit. During that time where you were, the, the insurance company wasn't going to give you this procedure. I must have been, I can only imagine the emotions that you felt, not only about the insurance company, but about soccer. I mean, here you are, you're, you're doing your job. You're clearly injured doing your job and nobody can find a way to get you what you need. What, what kind of emotions were you going through? And, and, and um, was there, I guess my real question is, were you angry and who were you angry at? <laughs> I was so very angry. So I wasn't mad at soccer because it gave me so much. And I remembered that and I knew that. And I didn't have this injury till I was 38, thank goodness, as opposed to 18. So I was lucky in that regard. But I think what I was angry at more than anything were the doctors that told me that I was fine. It was so frustrating because they wouldn't believe me. And I think the reason they didn't believe me is because they didn't know and they weren't willing to admit it. They weren't willing to admit to saying, okay, you know what? I'm not a specialist in closed, closed brain injury. I'm not a specialist in, you know, this pain you're having behind your, your left ear. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to refer you to someone who can possibly help you. It took over almost two years to find Dr. Crutchfield, who was a specialist. And back then, I mean, now it's very different. You know, 12 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot that we knew and understood about concussion. I mean, your brain is pretty much a black box. And so the doctors who kept telling me that I was fine and that it was all in my head, which was, wasn't a really sick joke, you know, it obviously was in my head, but not the way they meant it, um, didn't do me any favors by telling me that I was crazy, basically. And that's the thing that I got the maddest at. And then because of that, the insurance company felt like they could just deny me my judgment in court. And I went to court like five or six times. They could just decide to deny and not pay my uh, disability check because they wanted me to see another doctor. And it was really them treating me like a number, like someone who was trying to milk it. When I was quite the opposite. As an athlete, you want to get back to your life as quickly as possible, not draw it out longer. And so I was just so mad, like these doctors were so condescending and so dismissive. 
And they were looking at me like, oh, well, you're in the range. And I would look at them and say, you know what? You don't know what my range is because I was so focused that I could do what I did in front of 90,000 people in 107 degree weather in a world cup championship on a stage at a level of understanding and focus that you can't even fathom. So don't tell me that I'm, that this is this, how it's going to be. I don't believe you. And it got me so frustrated. And my lawyers would say, okay, Brian, okay, you're okay. (laughs) I would be so mad. And then I would find myself later on that day. I'm like, I'm still in the same spot, but I never believed them. I always believed myself. I always believed that I could get better, but it was just taking so long. And that was the problem. They just drew it out. And that's what they do. They, my lawyer said, he's like, um, Bride, they are going to try to draw this out until you go away. And he said, you know what? I'm not going away if you're not. And finally, eventually we got there. Amazing to go from, you know, suicidal thoughts to, to here you are today, you know, thinking about your journey, mm-hmm. 1999, again, the, you know, one of the most famous moments ever for women's sports. Mm-hmm. And, and even in, you know, you were the, you were the very first uh, openly gay player on the U S women's national team. And to watch all you've now gotten to see, up until your injury, and then since then, you know, deciding not to take your life, and now seeing your community um, celebrated in sports, celebrated on the U.S. women's national team, you are not the only gay player I in know. the U.S. WNT. How does that make you feel? I am so happy. I went to the 2015 World Cup final in Vancouver as, as a, as a fan of the game and seeing Abby Wambach and her then partner, Sarah Huffman kissing each other after the game and having Abby, having the flag draped around her shoulders. And that image of Abby kissing her partner as one of the iconic images of that world cup versus me when I made my save and ran into the stands to try to kiss my girlfriend, the cameras cut away from me once they realized it was a female. Wow. That was astonishing. That difference. And I was so excited and happy and seeing Megan Rapino and Abby and, you know, all these other amazing, strong, young players that are coming up through the ranks and are being their authentic selves. I just feel so happy. And recently, and this is not a spoiler because it's in the uh, trailer for my new documentary called The Only that's coming out July 12th from CBS Paramount Plus. Abby, in her interview for the documentary said, Bry showed me that I could be authentically me and allowed space for myself and Megan Rapino to Rapino it, as she put it. <laughs> and I didn't know that I had done that for her. And 
it's so amazing. I don't know if you've ever read Abby's story, but she had such um, a battle internally with being gay for the longest time and struggled with it because of her family ties and, you know, the Bible, what it says about being gay, she's going to hell and this and that. And, and to have her say, and, and knowing her story and to have her say that I helped her by being me was truly, you know, one of the most amazing moments of my life and all the things that I've done and been able to trailbla trailblaze, but for a teammate to say that it's just really, and she's so amazing, as you know, um, it really meant a lot for her to say that. And, and I'm happy and I'm honored and I, I'm, you know, intersectional as people say, and I'm gay and I'm black and I'm a woman and all these things and playing in a predominantly right white sport. And hopefully now it's getting a little bit more like this country, but it's an honor. It's an honor for me. And I, and I'm so grateful. And that's really the, that's really the juice right there is to have somebody come up to me and say, you know, I saw you play or do or say this. And now I'm on a path that makes me happier because you really can only be truly whole in my opinion, or honored when someone else's life is better because of you. Wow. Well that, yeah. And the, the only, I'm looking forward to seeing that next month. Um, and again, this is why I wanted to talk about really focus on the, uh, the, the, well, your greatest save and, and, you know, getting through the chronic pain and, um, and, and, and now being able to see your impact on so many people. And I know that you'll continue to have an impact on people just as a, as a, as a natural leader and, you know, keep, keep sharing your story. We'll keep sharing your story. Um, Thank you. Promote the book, the, the documentary. And I really appreciate you taking the time. It's one of the, one of the blessings of my life and career is that I get to talk to the most incredible people who have done the most amazing things in and outside of sports. And when Ellie Schaefer said, Oh, I can, I can get you. I said, sorry. I said, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I love me some Ellie Schaefer. So she's amazing. I mean, isn't she, she's just uh, a dynamo in her own right. And I, and I just absolutely adore her. She's awesome. Well, again, thank you for speaking up, sharing your story and, and thanks for talking with me here. You bet. It's been a pleasure and thank you so much. And now you're part of my journey too. So I appreciate you and uh, thank you so much. You can find Brian Scurry on Instagram and on Twitter and you can find her on Paramount Plus. Her movie comes out uh, mid-July, so check out The Only on Paramount Plus. And head to Amazon where her book, My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper is doing very well. Again, thank you, Brianna, for taking the time. It's, you know, again, the people that I get to talk to in my job without sports, it, it it's 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 just amazing and and uh, just you know so thankful for people like Brianna for giving me just a half hour of their time uh, to talk about their lives and also just for being so vulnerable. Uh, that's it's not easy for a lot of superstars to do, and I'm thankful to Brianna for opening up and doing just that. Anyhow, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.